When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, what's up, guys? Very sad, <laughs> solemn version of Pucks with Hags, uh, season-ending edition, season-ending mailbag edition we're going to get into here. I think it's going to be uh, a little angry, too, Xanus. I think there's going to be some anger in there, too. I never start angry, but I get <laughs> angry. Yes. I, I, I don't, it's not my you intention. You wouldn't like to... me when I'm angry. You wouldn't like it. People, it's not my intention to be angry, uh, yeah. but I'm, I can't guarantee that I won't get angry. Uh, because, again, you go through the seven stages of grief here or whatever it is following, and I don't know exactly where I've landed. Uh, a little bit on resignation right now, but, again, we're going to run through it. We've taken in a lot of uh, viewer and fan uh, feedback and questions. We're going to rip through some of that stuff, and Joe's going to answer uh, direct questions asked by some of his followers on the show. And just kind of break it all down. What happened? Where do we go from here? Is kind of, you know, the offseason has officially begun way, way, way earlier than we expected it to. Podcast, as always, is powered by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network. Head to FanDuel.com slash Boston and take advantage of 1000 Bucks in no sweat bets. That means you lose a bet, you get up to a thousand back to make up for it. Uh, a terrific deal. Again, fanduel.com slash Boston. And Joe, let's kind of start with the breakdown of it all. Uh, you know, we've seen this movie before with the Bruins. It did feel like this team was a little bit different because they had had they definitely covered up some of the deficiencies that have doomed past teams, uh, past playoff teams where they might look good post some decent regular season numbers, head into the postseason, and then you see, like, ah, I get it. You know, this team wasn't ready for it. This team felt a little different this year, and I know, and I personally, in all sports, try hard to not put too, 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 too much blame on a coach because I think it's a cop-out sometimes. I think that absolves the players of any responsibility and says yeah. if it was just a different person back there, everything would have been fine. I don't know that that's always the case, but it's hard to look at just what happened specifically in this series and not point to a series of things that Jim Montgomery did one after the other after the other that really did not put his team in the best position to win. Yeah, I mean, it's usually the easy out to go after the coach uh, when things go wrong. And I, I tend to avoid it because I think it's the easy out. And usually right. there's a lot of meat on the bone of, of players not executing, things happening. And obviously there was plenty of that in this series. You know, Hampus Lindholm was terrible in this series. He was soft. He looked like he was hearing footsteps the whole time after being fantastic during the year. Uh, there was definitely a slow start for David Pasternak in the series. He started getting going towards the end, but you know we find out afterwards he hurt his shoulder on the first shift of Game 1, and, and that really impacted him uh, to begin with. Uh, and you obviously look at the goaltending in general, under a 900 save percentage, they just neither one of them got it done uh, over the course of a series and didn't play anywhere near what they did during the regular season. Defenseman core was terrible, but all that stuff being said under the pressure of the Florida forecheck, but all that being said... I think there was a series of moves and a general vibe coming from the head coach on down uh, that helped set up failure in this uh, playoff series for the Boston Bruins. And it doesn't even start in the playoffs. 
It starts in game 82 when Patrice Bergeron is playing in Montreal in a yep. meaningless game, and he suffers a herniated disc in his back in the first period of that game. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, it, it, I bump into a lot of people in the streets, right? And they'll ask me, what happened? What do you think happened? Like, they're stunned, they're flabbergasted, they're thunderstruck by the Bruins going out in the first round when everybody wasn't making plans for the next two months and, you know, had Stanley Cup final party plans for June, June for the Boston Bruins. And they kind of asked me what happened. And I'll go through a litany of things, but I say, but at the end of the day, if Patrice Bergeron has a herniated disc in his back that he suffered right before the playoffs started, you weren't winning the cup. Like, no matter what happened, if they got out of the first round, if they got to Toronto, like, they were not going to win the whole thing. If he was this version of himself. If Patrice Bergeron had a herniated disc in his back and was like he was in the Florida series, severely compromised, minus six in the three games that he played, beaten in a puck battle by Matthew Kachuk in overtime for the game winner, on the ice uh, for the the goal in game seven with a minute to go in the third period that tied up the game when they basically choked away a one-goal lead in the third period of game seven, you know, was completely ineffective. And I think to the point where his line mates and, and Brad Marchand was sort of out of position defensively in some of those instances, trying to help out Bergeron because he knew that Bergeron was a shell of himself fighting through this, uh, you know, traumatic back injury. Uh, so it starts with Patrice Bergeron and the decision, the coaching decision to allow him to play uh, in Montreal. You know, Bergeron's very adamant that, the coaching staff and he discussed it two weeks before the playoffs started and decided they were going to play the full lineup or close to it in that meaningless game in Montreal. And right at that point, it started the dominoes falling. And I'm sure Patrice Bergeron wanted to play in front of his friends and family and maybe his last game he was ever going to play in Quebec. And, you know, he has to wear some of the responsibility and the onus for sure and not just say, oh, the coach made the decision. Like, Patrice Bergeron meets every single day with Jim Montgomery. I see it. He goes into his office, and every day they talked about what they were doing, about the plans. I mean, basically, Patrice Bergeron was a player coach on this team, the amount of influence and impact he had. And and I think that's part of the problem that Jim Montgomery had uh, when the playoffs started is, you know, that, that that dynamic was there where Bergeron, I think, was calling a lot of the shots during the season. But at the end of the day, the first mistake was playing him in Game 82, Bergeron getting yeah. hurt. So let's go through the rest because, yes. again, that starts you there, right? So yep. uh, in addition to Bergeron, this is a, a bit of the annoying part. If you're a Bruins fan is, uh, you know, they played coy with with what was going on with Linus Allmark. Um, yep. And, you know, if reports are to be believed and he, in fact, had a torn labrum in his hip and we saw this, we've seen this movie with Tuka Rask before. Well, he uh, got hurt too. It was the second and last so game. And so he's hurt also. Yes. So again, look, you're going to play your goalies. Goalies are less likely to get injured than players, you know, but he clearly got hurt. They clearly, they told us in the media, uh, yeah, it's nothing. Maintenance, precautionary. Look, Again, to, to quote Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. When they're saying precautionary, that doesn't mean on the off chance that it gets aggravated. No, he got hurt. He's actually hurt. Yes, they it were lying to us. He was, I mean, that, wasn't that lifted for the time precautionary and reasons. Yeah. He was hurt. So they went into the playoffs with full knowledge that yes. Linus Ulmark was compromised. And again, of all the positions on the ice, I know you can play different uh, things, Joe, like you can be effective. You can hide some injuries, might not be your full self. Brad Marchand wasn't his full self all year, was still an excellent hockey player. Yep. A hockey goalie, even 5% compromised is, is not an NHL caliber goalie anymore. I mean, it's that, 
you need all of your you need all of your flexibility. You can't not move well as a yeah. goalie. You can't have lower body injuries and be anywhere near effective. So when you have a, ca- a capable backup like Swayman, it's mind boggling that they pushed Allmark as far as they did. Well, yes, listen, I I don't fault them for starting the series with Allmark. Of course because not. The, goal, the goalies still still can play through, but these you hip could issues see it at points during the year. It can lock up on them at times, but like usually they're able to play through it for the whole year with some ups and downs. And then they get they go to Colorado to the hip specialist and they get it done. You know, it's like getting the oil changed. At, 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 you know, they go there and get that done in the off season, and then they come back and they're as good as new. Tim Thomas got that done before he had the Vesna Trophy and Stanley Cup and Conn Smythe winning season in 2011. That summer before, that spring before, he had the hips done. He had the same injury the year before when he lost his job uh, to Tuka Rask way back when. So, like, to start the series, I understand why they started Allmark. As the series was going on, and this is like one of the other second guesses, and I really look at it this way. I don't have a ton of issues with Jim Montgomery and the job he did for the first four games in this series. Like, I think we all knew that the first couple of games that it was going to happen, that the Bruins were not going to be ready for the playoff intensity and speed that a player, a team like the Panthers was going to throw at them that had been playing for their lives since the NHL All-Star break, like the last two months of the season. They were fighting just to get into that eighth seed. They had, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Kachuk's dad, Keith, calling them soft up on radio in Ottawa and making fun of the team and challenging them. And they were, like, hardened. Hardened playoff-ready team when they started. The Bruins were not. They were soft and fat and happy off of uh, all the excesses and what they'd done during the regular season. So they weren't ready to start the first two games. I liked that the Bruins made some adjustments in games three and four. I thought they took control of the series down in Florida. They started handling the pressure and getting up to speed, all that. Like, my issues come after game four. At that point, you're up in the series three to one, okay? You are winning the series. You have a commanding lead. You beat the team twice on their own home ice. You're going back home uh, to potentially close them out in game five. That is not the time to start coaching like you're behind in the series. Start making these desperate attempts at things. Start keep riding Linus Allmark, who clearly does not look right. Game five, you're up three to one in the series. That is the time to go back to the goalie rotation that you used all year long to unbelievable success and to play Jeremy Swayman. You're up three to one in the series. If Jeremy Swayman doesn't win or doesn't play well, guess what? You still have two cracks at it after that. And you got Jeremy Swayman some action, so he's actually going to be able to help you if you need him uh, at some point shortly after that, if Linus Elmark is indeed uh, hurt, has a hip issue, whatever. But I, I just don't like in general that they swung so far away from what gave them success during the regular season as far as the goalies go. You needed to rotate them in some form or fashion. Didn't have to be every other game, but game five was the perfect time to put Swayman in. And we talked about this in the podcast, Zanis. I was advocating for that, and I remember you and Ty were both saying, no, I wouldn't do that. No, I was saying saying we we were debating... The optimal time, which we actually thought was the game before. Yeah, I did. I actually thought game. I thought game five was tricky only because now with momentum and up three one, if Swayman got shelled, it would look controversial. I thought that was actually a pressure moment. I thought three or four was optimal because even after two, I thought it was evident. All Mark was having a tough time getting up off the ice and moving. And so have, that's what we were saying. Once yeah. you have a three to one lead in the series, dance, that's the time to do something like that. That's when you have Earlier. a stranglehold on them. Earlier. And you put in, <laughs> no, I disagree. I think you put Swayman in in that exact spot. 
because it's a no lose. If you lose, you still have the next two games. If you win, you got Swayman in. He played well, and you can start him on a roll. And you can. But go you back know how this but works. Too, you're getting it at that point. You're getting too far away from the goalie rotation. So- that gave you the Jennings Trophy, that has the, the Vesna Trophy winner, that was the, the I could argue, the biggest part of their success. Yeah, was the it, was, it was, it was. Why they had 65 but wins we've and done this. points. We've done but, this before. We work in the media. We know how the narratives go. If Swayman yeah, but, yeah, but started... Zanis, I understand what you're saying from a media perspective. Yeah. I don't give a flying fig about the narratives. <laughs> that, the Bruins should not care about the media narratives. But that the should pressure, not be driving the bus of the decisions that they're but making. But that's where the pressure the starts on Swayman. What's going to allow them to win the games and yeah. what's best for their team and sticking with what actually worked with them during the year. And this is my problem, I'm telling you, with the Bruins. They get too far away from what worked for them during the regular season in the playoffs, and that's a coaching problem. Going away from the goalie rotation – that is a coaching decision, and I don't like that Jim Montgomery all of a sudden started blaming Bob Asenza for making the decision and saying, I, you know, so I don't question him, I have no part in that. It's like he was removing himself as head coach from the goalie decision, which you absolutely can't do. So, like, beyond beyond uh, Allmark and Swayman, I have a huge issue with that. I think it was a big mistake uh, to not go with Jeremy Swayman in Game 5. Again in Game 5. Big mistake to put Patrice Bergeron in. And in that's game the one five. thing and he I talked also about. I argued with you and Ty about this on the podcast and said I would not be putting Patrice Bergeron in. Let them try to close out this series. Give them extra rest. Don't mess with what's going on. Don't put him in this situation. But it wasn't it, just that. It was who he put him with, and that's the one thing. And if we're right, going to talk about him, Montgomery. I, I, yes, I agree. But the if we're going to talk about put, Montgomery, I, he played cute with a lot of things that he said. The one thing he kind of sort of acknowledged after Game 7, I wish I hadn't put Patrice there. I think there's an argument to be made, Joe, for what you're saying, not putting him in at all. You could have done that because you were playing very well. You had a you lot of things going yes. for you. You know, putting it's very similar in, to what's going on move, with the Sixers and Joel Embiid. It's like a desperation yeah. move, like you're behind in the series. It's a panic move. You're coaching like you're losing the series when you're rushing Bergeron in with a same, three to one lead. Same thing with the Sixers and Joel Embiid right now. Yes. You can make the same argument. Which I, is, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. And and I I think you could also make the argument, and I think looking back in hindsight, this is why they shook up the lines like they did is I think they were worried about what Bergeron was going to have on the ice and how he was going to play, and they were trying to protect him. And they were trying to put him in a situation where, like, he only played 12 minutes a night in the playoff games. He was not playing a lot because he was hurt. So I think they were trying to, you know, maneuver it in such a way to put him into the lineup even though he was hurt and they knew he was going to be a shell of himself. And that's a huge problem if you knew that going in. And to your point... If now all of a sudden you're messing with your line combinations that worked all year, there were a bunch of forwards that were playing with guys they had never played with all season long. And Jim Montgomery made a huge point during the year of mixing guys up at times to say, when the playoffs come, I want to make sure these guys have chemistry and have played with each other so they are, oh, there's some familiarity You know, if, if we get into the playoffs and they get thrown together. Sure. Guess what? He took guys that had never played together during the regular season once, not at all, and threw them in together at the start of Game 5 and then lamented afterwards why they had a slow start to that game that they dominated in the second, third period. It's because you put a bunch of forwards together that hadn't played all year well, long. Like It's not brain to, surgery. Let me counter that, though, and I agree with you. Just one small counter to play devil's advocate to that because I do think – the, the 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 downside to what he did in those games was you had a formula you knew worked yes and so why mess with it 
You but, don't do that when you're winning a series. But or just you've seen you've seen proven success with some of the line combos. However, you will say that some of the line combinations they were forced to put together when they played games three and four without Krejci and Bergeron were also groups of people who had not really played together, and they saw a lot of success there. They so I don't think he somewhat. thought. I don't think he thought it was as egregious as it looked on. Uh, on the ice when we saw the product because of the two reasons. One, I don't think he thought the lack of familiarity would mess with some of these combos because he thought they were so they were good enough to be able to figure it out. But two, also, how ineffective both Bergeron and Krejci were, and you're putting them in two premium positions, centering your top two lines and neutering the rest of the players on those lines with two people that didn't look like they were necessarily ready for that level of action at that point in time based on whatever it was they were going through. Yeah. So I, I think I it's tell, twofold. I think but, it could, I, if those guys are healthy, I think the messing with the lines isn't as big a deal. Yes. I, I, but to tell you like from covering the team all year with the line combinations, games three and four, you saw guys that at least played each other with each other <coughs> during the year. Like they were somewhat familiar. They weren't the usual lines, but Bertuzzi but with Bergeron with was each on, other at right. some point or another for a few games. Literally, the game, the lines in Game Five were guys that had never, ever, not once during the year, played with each other for any long, even a shift. I think a lot, you know, that because Bergeron and Marchand played with each other the entire time. Once you you move those two, you know, uh, pieces all around the board, goofy. you had all kinds of players that were totally unfamiliar with each other that had never played with each other. I just that, like I said, that's a panic move to do something like that when you're winning in a series to throw it all together like that. Uh, you know, when you're up three to one going into a game, you want to close them out at home and you're you're motivated to close them out at home to get rest for all these banged up players that, you know, behind closed doors uh, are yeah. injured. So, you know, I, I, I think like my general, like I said to you, overarching philosophy with this is I think Jim Montgomery got a little rattled and a little panicked as this series was going on. And he started yeah. coaching like he was losing the series instead of winning it in he up did. three and one. And I really have major issues with that general uh, approach and, and how he reacted to it. And I really feel like it was the first time the coach was feeling the heat and feeling the adversity all year when everything had rolled all, all season long for them. Yeah. And there were players that have dealt with this stuff before, but the coach really hadn't. And he's kind of an unproven coach when it comes to those kind of expectations, that kind of pressure, all that stuff at the NHL level. And I think he showed it in the series. And well, you know, he wasn't to completely blame, you know, he wasn't the sole reason they lost that series. But I think there's a very good argument to be made that he was one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest, that they ended up losing the series with the decisions he was making. Yeah, there's a, and there's a couple ways to look at it. I, you know, it did look panicky. It did look odd. I think from his perspective, again, to play some devil's advocate, because yeah. I agree with almost all of it, was I do believe he thought these weren't as, uh, you know, they weren't going to blow up in his face as much as these moves did. And it's yeah. also easy to point at them. But it, it wasn't just the line combos. It was also the, you know, some weird stuff on who's in, who's out. You know, yes. uh, the, the decision to play uh, Connor Clifton was disastrous in game yes. five. Um, yep. Disastrous. I mean, it's almost single-handedly. I mean, yeah, if Clifton you're gonna was a disaster in game six. He was horrendous. Uh, six, rather. It never, I mean, never should have happened. Six, sorry. Disaster Grizzly, like, in game six. It was a good adjustment then, to put Grizzly in. He was handling the pressure fine. Like, and we had talked about this yeah. as Grizzly being it a guy. It seemed odd. Why is he the odd man out? Right. Yes. Because he can deal with that forecheck pressure. He can move the puck. He's not going to make a lot of mistakes. And he looked, you know, he wasn't outstanding. He wasn't piling up points. 
but he wasn't making mistakes and he looked pretty effective aside from that one like bad handoff play with Allmark behind the net that cost them a game. But that was Allmark's fault. I didn't think right. that was really exactly. Grizzlick's fault. But it, 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 you're right. And that was another one of the second guesses was Clifton going in back into that series when he looked like a deer in headlights earlier on when he had played. And sitting Felino in game seven, you know, is another yes. one where you're going to look at that and be like, well, you know, that's the you have players like this for moments like this. And that's an odd one there. And you put in Trent Frederick, who honestly was bad all series long. I mean, you really yeah. did not make an imp- put an imprint on the series at all. And I didn't like um, I didn't like his reaction after the game in Game Six either when they lost that game in Florida, and he started talking about what a great hockey game it was and oh, you know, all this other stuff. I, I was like, this guy completely looks like he's lost in the moment. You like it's way too big for him, and he doesn't know what to say after Game Six. So he starts talking about what a great hockey game it was. Like nobody yes. wants to hear that, so I- and it's just not the right message. I have a philosophy on that, and honestly, it was my biggest thing going into Game 7. The players are the players, and what was going on in the ice, and, you know, with whatever injuries they were dealing with, and some of that other stuff, you know, you'll never fully know the extent, but, you know, it, I think it was evident, and we've covered that already, but the, yep. fra- the frame of mind of Montgomery, and whatever it was that he told his players, and the way that they were talking from Game 6 on about Game 7, this is an opportunity. I'm telling them to go out there and enjoy it. No, man. Look, nope. that... That first of all, you talk about tone and whether or not what happens in the media to the fan base matters. The, people at home are freaking the f out that you guys are blowing this yep. chance at a Stanley Cup. This is a generationally good team here. What are you doing? And don't tell me, oh, I just said, just oh shucks, just go out and enjoy it. That's how eight seeds talk when you play set game sevens. Nothing to lose. You know, and all oh, the players were kind of echoing. Never coached a game seven, or, or a player coach that's trying, that's recognizing they're blowing it, yep. and they gotta not act like they're blowing it and not seem too tense and nervous. But behind the scenes, I feel like they knew, and he knew, I'm blowing this right now. We're yep. blowing it, and so they're talking about from that was just a great hockey game, great, great, great game from game six post through the couple of days leading up to game seven. Aw, shucks, let's play game seven, rah, rah, rah. It's an opportunity, go out and seize it. That's why we got home ice. That's what we want to do. Wrong. No, we have allowed the Panthers back in this, and we have to come out with fierce determination and make sure we don't piss away all the good work we've done this season. The pressure and the onus is on us to perform. That's the message, not it's going to be fun. I told them to go out there and make the most of this opportunity. I hated it. I knew they were in trouble as soon as I heard that from Montgomery after game six. I really like my son and my wife went to game seven. They had tickets and I felt bad that they were going to have to sit in the stands because I didn't didn't like what was coming after I'd heard that stuff. And I can tell you, like Finn uh, and Alyssa, Alyssa told me uh, they sat there, they watched uh, the game seven goal. And you know how it is in an arena in a game seven when the home arena, when the home team loses in overtime, it's like dead silence. It's a weird atmosphere. Stunned. It's almost like a funeral. You can't believe and like, it. Like Alyssa said that Finn, from the time that goal was scored in game seven in overtime by Florida, the entire ride home did not say a single word. He was just stunned. It was like his indoctrination like it was for us when we watched Buck, the ball go through Buckner's legs in yeah, 86. Yeah, exactly. Just like that stupefying, stunning moment where you just like your slack jot as a kid and a sports fan. Yeah. Like, what, what did I just watch, you know? Yeah, it's the first it's the first bullet 
Yeah, yes. and it, Buckner's a great one. 2003 Grady, great one. You're like, I, oh, yeah. I, I can't I can't believe that. So, nope. yeah, no, all of that stuff, it, it, it's, it's, it's unreal, and, and it happened, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's frustrating, and it, you'll see the tone of a lot of the questions and a lot of the things that we're going to talk about in the back half of this podcast is going to deal with a lot of that and a lot of the things we've asked you to ask us about. Quite a bit on Montgomery, also quite a bit on the future and what it's going to look like. And I think that that's the other thing is as you transition from the, 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 the sadness or the shock or whatever it is you feel that this special team has moved on and having to potentially live in a world where Patrice Bergeron is not playing hockey for the Boston Bruins is really hard for people to fathom. But, yeah. um, you know, that's one thing. Uh, the other is, well, what the hell are we going to do now? Because this was a kind of let's push all our chips in and go for it. So we're going to talk about that as well. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, Joe, we have no choice at this point but to hop into some questions uh, from some Let's fans. And I want to hear from the angry fans. They're angry. Uh, they're angry. Uh, so let's kind of start with, um, you know, uh, I guess we'll start with where we were before. Uh, and let me look for a good Monty question here. Uh, you know, maybe we get off of Monty and we go to this. I, I, this is a strange Montgomery sort of suggestion, but from John Haley, maybe you should try a coaching tandem next. Monty can be nice, bring everyone gum and Gatorade and let the players run the team. Then give him a clipboard and find a coach. We're, and we're, we're bleeping. We're going to bleep. It's redacted for video that knows how to win an effing in the effing playoffs. And I guess... <laughs> That's where we come back, and that's John Haley. But John Haley is the fans right now, which is like, yep. uh, you know, you're watching Bruce Cassidy, you know, and, 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 and his team continue on. And, oh, but Bruce was mean, and he had to go. And, like, the Oshucks coach is nice, and we've seen player coaches come in. And everybody loves the player coach coming off of the mean, hard, critical coach. And there's always a honeymoon period. You just don't expect it to end so fast because sometimes you need that asshole. You need the guy. And we make this comp comparison on the Celtics all the time, Joe. It's, I'm not saying Joe Missoula is necessarily a nice guy, but one thing that Ime Udoka was credited with turning the Celtics around was he wasn't afraid to go out and literally use the word, guys, stop playing like assholes. He was hard, he held them accountable, and he made sure that they didn't do that. I don't know how much these guys needed a kick in the butt to get themselves going. Were they playing scared? You mentioned Lindholm, you mentioned people disappearing. Did they need a tougher disciplinarian type coach in there to... To, or did they need Montgomery to be that guy in order to kind of channel whatever best version of themselves uh, they weren't able to, to, to put out there, injured guys aside? I think they needed a coach that could do both, right? You needed a coach that could recognize the moment and decide what the team needed and give it to them. And I just don't think Montgomery was experienced enough in the playoffs to, to be that guy. And, you know, to be honest with you, like Cassidy had his uh, crit critics when he was here that he wasn't a good playoff coach either, that he would get out coached by other um, coaches in playoff series as far not as matchups. Not be able to adjust. Sort of working the refs and, and, you know, saying the right thing in the series, motivating, like all that stuff. He had the same type criti uh, criticisms. So, 
like, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that it would have been uh, all that different or it would have been 100% different if Bruce Cassidy was the coach. But look, his Vegas team is still playing, you know, and, and th- it's very telling that that's going on while uh, the Boston Bruins are, you know, searching for answers. And, and I, I do think he was too over-the-top players coach not being critical, but that's why he was hired, right? A big part of the reason he was hired is because that's what the Bruins wanted. That's what Patrice Bergeron wanted. That's what the players wanted. And Don Sweeney and Cam Neely recognized that uh, to the point where I think that was the message that was sent when he was hired is, look, you know, we want somebody that's going to be positive, that's not going to lambaste the players in public, that's not going to critique them in the media, that's not going to do any of this stuff, that's not going to, you know, yell and scream on the bench. And it worked during the regular season, but I think you throw that out the window when the playoffs come. And I don't think that was something that Montgomery recognizes that you need to be yep. a little bit of a different guy in the playoffs. And let's be fa- let's face it, I think at times in the playoffs, maybe Patrice Bergeron uh, needs to be a little bit more of of that hard ass too, to a degree, as a leader. You know, if he's going to be the player coach on a team, I think there are times where he kind of needs to be a little bit more of that too, yeah. or uh, you know, and, and change his leadership style. Downside and, to quiet leaders. You know, yeah. I, I, I think there's been too many times in recent history with the Bruins where they get pushed around in playoff series and they don't have enough to push back and they don't yeah. have enough to deal with it. And this Florida series was a close one, right? They lost a bunch of overtime games. They had a lead in game uh, seven in the final minute. Like, this definitely could have gone either way. Uh, Dmitry Orlov is what, like two inches on the crossbar away from scoring a goal in overtime in game seven to win. Like they could have won this series, and they March had on breakaway game five. Do it. So obviously, yeah. This wasn't one of those series where they got dominated by a team. I felt like, or uh, physically imposed to the point where they wore down and had nothing left at the end of the series. I th- felt like that's absolutely what happened against the St. Louis Blues in 2019 in the Stanley Cup Final. But but I definitely think there were times in this series where Montgomery should have had a different tone. Definitely Game Six, like we talked about, being one of them where he needed to flip a switch and show a little bit of a different side of a coaching tactic. And as a coach, you should be able to coach different ways to different players, different tenors and different tones at times, depending on what the situation calls for. And I think at points in that series, you needed to see him be a little bit more in control, a little more assertive, a little more nasty and attitude-wise, bringing something a little different than he brought all year instead of the sunshine and the roses and and the rainbows. And he didn't do it. You know, like he, the, game six, when he talked about what a great hockey game it was and how lucky we were to play in this afterwards, yeah. wrong tone, terrible tone, spoke to me of a guy that had not been in that situation before and had not really coached a lot of game sevens and didn't know what he was going to say afterwards. So he ended up saying that instead, which was not the right tone to strike going into that final game at all. Yeah. Um, so the and and we just to be clear, we're not comparing would Cassidy have been better for this team than than than, no. than Montgomery by any means because as you mentioned, Joe, uh, Bruce Cassidy was one thousand percent when the season ended last year going to be the head coach um, until they talked to a bunch of players and they were like, oh, geez. They really don't want this guy. So a change had to be made and and probably a change for a guy like Montgomery. But again, you see, as you mentioned here, where there's some of the failings uh, of a player, of a coach who's hasn't been in this moment and maybe needed to be a little bit more of a hard ass uh, as well. We're going to go to Oswald Cobblepot, which is a totally real name and not a Willy Wonka (laughs) character. Big Goonies Um, fan. Yep, uh, and uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna double this up with a, one of the comments that I got. Uh, here's what Oswald said: Bruins lose in first round 
last year. They return 90% of the roster and lose in first round this year. Where's the upset? Obviously, there's some of the players that they brought in were massive enhancements, and the goaltending uh, was uh, insanely better this year than it was last year. So not entirely accurate, but talking about whether this was a true upset, and I'm going to say uh, also my buddy Ron, who uh, who uh, uh, tweeted one of these, uh, was this a choke or were the Panthers actually better? So let's kind of talk about it. How big an upset was it truly? You look at the numbers and you say one versus eight. You look at yep. the point differential, 40-something points between these two teams after the Bruins had a historic regular season you look at a Panthers team that clawed its way in and a Bruins team that had you know just been eviscerating people all year long and it's easy to say geez Louise they should have beat this team 99 times out of 100 do you believe that that was the case did they choke because again I'm watching if you're just watching the games in terms of what was being played maybe you could argue the Panthers should have won one and the Bruins should have won five but every other game the victor was the better team yeah, and I should uh, change my pop culture uh, reference. Oswald Cobblepot, I believe, is the penguin from Batman's real name. And <laughs> is that I what? was thinking <laughs> Chester Copperpot from the Goonies. So I, I screwed up my Cobblepots and Copperpots. That's it. That's a good one. Uh, but as far as the game, like, do we, yes, it was a choke. It definitely was a choke. But uh, I, the, the question I would ask and what uh, I thought when I sort of saw these questions from the fans and these thoughts is – do we change our mind about this if the Florida Panthers win the cup? You know, if they go all the way, they bl- they're blowing doors on the Maple Leafs right now. The Leafs look exactly like the Bruins did in the first couple of games where they are not prepared for the Whoa, these guys are coming. that the Panthers yeah. are throwing at them. It yeah. looks like the very same thing is kind of playing out where they're, they're having team meetings and, like, the, the Leafs are frustrated and, you know, they don't – they, 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 they can't believe what uh, the Panthers have done to them and turned them into. But, like, the Bruins went through the same exact thing in the first round. So in my mind, the Panthers are looking very worthy as a team. And if that team goes all the way through and ends up winning the Stanley cup, do we change a little bit of how we feel about losing in the seven games to them? uh, As, as the Bruins did, you know, going all the way to overtime and a bunch of games, having all these chances to close it out, really pushing them to the brink and then losing to a team that ultimately showed they were good enough to win the whole thing. I don't know that my mind is going to change on what I saw and what I thought in my analysis afterwards. I'm not sure if a lot of the fans are going to change, but I think there will be a little bit more of um, a discussion or some leeway from some people for sure uh, at the way things went down in the series and how much of a choke this was if the Florida Panthers go out and and win the whole thing. You know, if the Panthers came out and, you know, lost uh, one or two of these games to Toronto, went out in the second round, I think there's a lot more uh, fi- logs on the fire uh, to it being like this massive choke and to people getting on the Bruins. If the Panthers dictate terms to every single team that they play and every series that they play and just take every team by storm that they play in the playoffs and go out and win the Stanley Cup, I'm maybe going to feel a little less strongly about how big a choke this was at the end of the day, You know, seeing that happen. But still, bottom line is, 65 wins, 135 points, best team in in NHL history as far as the regular season goes. Expectations sky high. You have a lead with one minute to go in the third period. You have your best players on the ice, and you can't close it out. And then you lose in overtime with, again, your best players on the ice. You know, and and you were in a situation, you had leads several times in game six in the third period. In game five, you had a breakaway with one of of your best players' sticks at the end of the third period, and he's not able to cash in on that goal. 
Like you're going to look back no matter what happens and have tons of regret and tons of feeling that the Bruins choked based on the opportunities that they had in all three games to close them out. It's and a I choke. don't think that's going to change no matter what happens. It, it, and again, definitively, it's a choke. Yep. The, the regu- what they did in the regular season matters. It's on the record. You're not supposed to lose a first-round matchup. Once you get into the second round, you can start to argue almost every team remaining is roughly as talented as the Bruins. You know, like, it, it uh, it's hockey is tough. It's a competitive sport. But you choked because of what you did in the regular season and the expectations. But as you mentioned, Joe, you choked again. A th- not, you've choked multiple times. Yep. A 3-1 series lead, the game on your stick in Game 5, leads in Game 6, and a, 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 and and one minute to go to slip through this round. You choked over and over and over again. It wasn't a single choke job. They choked multiple times. And, and it was the way that it happened in that goal that was allowed in Game 7 was... All of the players, every single Bruins player was at, around the goal line or below the goal line. No wingers uh, out playing the defensive coverage they were supposed to play. You're giving a guy like Brandon Montour a, a, you know, a chance to rifle one at the net who has killed you all series. Like execution-wise, they blew it too. With what, the, what they were doing defensive coverage zone-wise at, at the end of that game. And But, but you know, to the point of uh, the fans and, and the people sending the messages – uh, the Panthers were not your typical eight seed. They won the President's Trophy the year before, extremely talented, went through yep. the entire year, underachieving because of injuries and inconsistency in net and all this other stuff. But the talent was there for them to be a top seed in the Eastern Conference, and they it came together for them in the playoffs. And yep. sometimes those teams end up winning the whole thing and winning the cup because it all comes together for them at the right time, and they have the talent. Yeah, exactly. I mean, would you have been stunning with Colorado after what they went through if they had made a deeper run, knowing what type of team they had and they had a ton of injuries this year? No, well, they ended up going out in the first round, but that wouldn't have shocked people. You're seeing it in the NBA right now with the Miami Heat. That's yeah. not shocking. They were the number one team in the, in the Eastern Conference last year, uh, returning a lot of the same core. So these players are totally capable uh, of doing that, and I think that's what you're seeing. So I think it's both. The answer to both those questions is it's a choke, but the Panthers are better than we gave them credit for. Uh, moving on to Steve uh, Delacandro, and this is what's a, this is an interesting question to talk about, Joe. Um, obviously, you have the future of uh, Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci is unknown, and I'm curious you know, folded into your answer here, which yeah. way you think they're leaning just based on either your information or your vibe. But, uh, everyone's thinking, well, if we get these guys back and some guys take a discount and we do some things creatively with the cap, maybe you can just run it back one more year. I think that's what fans want desperately is let, can we get a do over? Okay. We've screwed this one up, but can we try it one more time? I think yep. that's a general vibe among the Bruins, but Steve, uh, posits, you know, maybe a change is necessary. I honestly believe a changing of the guard, predominantly our veteran core of Bergie and Krejci, must change. Love both players, yet the mentality uh, I believe that exists on the bench is let's win it for them. Got to exit the locker room so the young leadership core can start building and strengthening their roles up and down the lineup. Now, it's you need, you have to point out that, yeah, you're losing a ton in those guys, but you do have some pieces, foundational pieces in place with contracts that are going to keep them here for a long time and players in their primes in Lindholm, McAvoy, and Pasternak, and you still have Marshawn who's Marshawn. The cupboard is not bare, but at what point do you think they got to start to look forward rather than get stuck in the now or or stuck looking back and recognize it's sad, but the window has passed them. Uh, So you got to start building. 
Yeah, and and part of the and you'd feel better guess, if there was stuff coming up, but there isn't yes. really, so that's the problem. Part of the yeah. second guess uh, with Bergeron playing in Game Five was because Pavel Zaka and Charlie Coyle were rolling as yep. uh, the top two centers in the games in Florida, and they were playing really well. And you know, it, it it was a mistake. I I would posit to mess with that. What was working for them so well with those guys stepping up and having their sort of moment to shine with Krejci and Bergeron out. And they were also younger, bigger, more a little more physical at points, but certainly better legs uh, and better ability to bounce back every right. other day in the playoff grind, um, you know, at that point and, and sort of where they are in their careers. So, like, I, th- there's, there's a, a balance here. Like, they definitely have Pavel Zaka – uh, signed, sealed, delivered in great season this year where he really lived up to being a top five pick in the first round. It looks like a really great trade that the Bruins made s- sending Eric Holla for Zaka and that he's going to be your David Krejci replacement as the number two center. You know, I, I think that one is going to be tough to walk back on for the Bruins. And I think that one is sort of like almost set in cement. And I'd be very surprised if David Krejci comes back uh, and plays again. But... All that being said, I got the vibe in that dressing room talking to those guys and, and interacting with them and just listening to what they were really saying, <laughs> that they both have extreme reservations, understandably so, about going out like that, about going out like that, what happened in Game 7, about going out on home ice, choking in a Game 7, going out as losers in the first round, when both of them had envisioned this long, glorious playoff run where they're going to be able to walk into the, right off into the sunset for their NHL careers as Stanley Cup champs at the end of breaking you know, records with the regular season. And I think there's going to be a lot of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh thoughts from both of those guys about coming back and doing it one more time and trying to right that wrong next year and seeing if they can have a better ending you know, to their NHL careers than the, the bitterness of what happened uh, on home ice in game seven uh, at the end of that series against Florida. And I, I think that I get a strong sense that Patrice Bergeron's not going to go out like that. You know, like I, I think he did have his, he probably had his mind made up certainly if they won the cup that he was done and he was going to retire, he's going to go out Mark Recchi style. But I, I got to think right now, just given what a proud athlete he is and, and a guy that's won at every level and, you know, has the respect of everyone uh, that he wants to go out on a better note uh, than that. So it, it wouldn't stun me if he comes back and wants to play next year. It would surprise me more if David Krejci comes back and plays. But, uh, you know, and I think, look, hockey's a business. The NHL's a business. Those guys are draws. The fans love them. Like, if they want to come back, I think the Bruins are going to welcome them back because that sells jerseys. It sells tickets. You know, players love Bergeron. Uh, you know, f- uh, fans love Bergeron. Uh, everybody loves Bergeron. And I think that's one where they're not going to – I think they would welcome him back, and I don't think they would have any reservations about it because I think it's good for business. They don't have a number one center to replace him organizationally. They'd have to go out and find somebody. Um, he is, you know, 37 years old. He's getting old man injuries now, like herniated discs in his back and – you know, the body is definitely breaking down, and I don't know how you can rely on him to be your number one center for two months if you want to go on a long playoff run to win the Cup, just where he is age-wise, 
you can't expect him to play 18 to 20 minutes super intense playoff hockey every other night for two months because he's just I don't think he's going to hold up and certainly he's not going to be able to keep up his level of performance in the playoffs every single night if you're asking that kind of a role but could I could I see uh, or envision something where they start dropping him down the lineup a little bit and maybe he becomes you know your third line center playing less minutes or he still you know is your first line center in name but he plays less minutes and you've got other younger guys playing bigger roles at, at the center position I think that's the if he continues to play, that's the natural transition. But like from a cold hard analytical, like what's best for the organization, what's going to allow them to succeed? Yeah, I do think the better option would be to find somebody that's younger um, to be able to play as your number one center, to play with Brad Marchand, to play with David Pasternak if that's who you want him to play with. You know, to 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 be a, a guy that's playing twenty minutes a night, to playing in all situations, all that stuff. A guy that you're going to expect to be at his best in the last minute of a third period after he's played an entire game. And it's hard to ask that from a guy that's 37, 38 years old that you're playing these huge minutes for. So uh, to answer your question, I, I think the right move from a cold hard business standpoint, from a team building standpoint would probably be to move on from those guys. But I think from a business standpoint of making money of being an NHL team, that's about entertainment and, you know, putting fans in the seats and making them happy I think they're going to let Patrice Bergeron play for as long as he wants to, within reason, obviously. And I think if he wanted to come back, which he may, that they would, you know, be all for it and would sign him to another one of those one-year deals and continue to pay the price moving forward. Like, they're going to have to pay a $5 million salary cap penalty this coming year because of the contracts they signed Krejci and Bergeron to. So I don't even think you could do both of them back again because it's going to continue to destroy you salary cap-wise. It would probably be an either-or, and I'm sure it would be Bergeron over Krejci. Yeah, and I think that that's the most likely scenario. What's also interesting about the whole thing is, Joe, I don't think there's any other scenario. I mean, I think, I'm not saying any scenario, but I do agree. I think this is the one scenario that definitely brings Patrice Bergeron back just because of how bad it tastes. Whether yes. it was cup whether it was cup and done, I even think a deep playoff run losing in conference finals would be like, all right, we gave it a run. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. Uh, but this, this feels unfinished, and I believe that that's... Um, you know, he may come to that conclusion as well. Uh, and the th- so- well, the thing is, too, Zan, is like, he's good enough to, like, and he's proud enough, and he's a good enough leader that if this really lights a fire under him, he it's going to turn him into something next year, too, and it's going to turn well, him into a motivated guy leading them for something different than setting history, than having the perfect storybook ending. Like, let's not forget uh, the embarrassment of getting uh, – you know, swept out the door after they had a three nothing lead against the Flyers in 2010, set them up to win the cup in 2011 because they had emba- something embarrassed the hell out of them, and they were angry about it and they were pissed all year, and that allowed them uh, to have the season that they did and end up winning. Sometimes I think that's the best motivator for professional athletes rather than setting records, having this great fairy tale ending where you get to go out on top and ride off into the sunset, all this other stuff. Like legacy, you know, like getting the second cup for Patrice Bergeron's legacy, kind of cementing his greatness, like all that. The better motivator is being absolutely thoroughly pissed that you got embarrassed by a team and that they took something from you and that, you know, you were left on home ice with this bitter taste in your mouth at the end. And I think that could be something that helps them next year go to much greater heights than whether they ended up going this year. 
But it's, you know, the one of the downsides to a Bergeron return or a Bergeron and Krejci return is typically when players get older, uh, that when they do continue playing is their roles are reduced. Mark Recchi, right. you know, wasn't asked to go out and score 45 goals. He was, right. but he, he was a very competent second line. You know, I mean, he, you know, he played up, but the, you didn't need Mark Recchi to carry the team. Patrice Bergeron is still expected to carry a heavy load, playing yep. the bumper on the power play, playing all of the penalty kills and centering your top line because there's no one in the pipeline. It would be much more much easier to bring guys like this back. If you could say to Bergie, yeah, you're going to play about 12 minutes a night, 13 minutes a night. You're going to play on the third line. We're going to take you off special teams. Your presence is great, but it's going to be less of a toll. A guy like Bergeron on this team, his greatness is because he can do all of those things, because he plays in dirty areas, because he's a grinding defensive forward. That's a massive toll to continue yep. to ask someone. It's not, hey, skate around and have fun. You'll play on the PP unit and just a few minutes a game and, you know, just whatever. You'll be fine. So they're asking a lot of him. You're asking a lot. And the problem is, and it'll dovetail into our next question, I had, you know, uh, solicited some myself. Uh, we've got uh, Day saying, uh, do we have any good prospects in the system, uh, you know, you know, to kind of come in and play that 2C spot or, or you know, one or 2C spot in the, in the, in the in, you know, coming up? And the answer is no. No. <laughs> you don't. You really only have one potentially dynamic prospect, period, in Fabian Lysel, who is not a guarantee by any means, uh, you know, to, 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 to be an impact player at all. And you've given away draft picks to try to better yourself. So uh, it's going to be a long time before there's that next guy coming up right now, unless they absolutely uh, hit on a lottery ticket, you know, in later rounds of the drafts. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's asking a lot. Like I think the better option that they're going to have for the next few years and what they're, you're going to see is them signing a lot of college hockey free agent. Yeah. Cause right now you're looking at Zaka and Frederick, you know, yeah. as your potential Replace Coyle, Zaka, Frederick are your centers in the top three lines. To, if both these guys go, that's what you got right now. You're going to try to hit like Tory Krug, uh, Kevin Miller, college hockey, you know, undrafted free agent guys <laughs> that you, you, your scouts tell you are going to turn into something because they're going to have to, because they don't have first or second round picks like until 2026. Like they, they don't have anything uh having traded all that collateral away and you're right like the 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 perfect scenario here for Bergeron if he was going to come back is if it's a situation like it was the last few years with Chara where McAvoy was coming on the scene and you had the sort of heir apparent to Chara and he was sort of learning at Chara's feet for a year or two and then he took over and Chara sort of moved on you know it, it would it would be much better if there was a number one center like if Jack Studnika turned it out to be what they thought he was going to be or something like that, you know, it would have been much better for the Boston Bruins if that were the case. And you had a guy that's emerging, that's going to be the next number one center for 10 years. And Bergeron could scale back what he was doing and sort of shepherd that kid along. But that's not the case. You know, right now, Fabian Lysel is a good prospect on the wing, good offensive prospect for sure. They have a very good defensive prospect that might've even passed uh, Fabian Lysel and Mason Lowry the Ohio State uh, defenseman who is probably going to be on this team next year. It's probably going to be the reason Dmitry Orlov doesn't come back. 
uh, because of salary cap, you have to have a bunch of these guys on. You have to. You can't pay everybody. And, and cheap yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why, like, you know, when Nick Felino talks about, like, trying to work something out with the Bruins to come back next year, it's like, yeah, Nick, if you want to play for $750,000 a year on a one-year contract, you, if you want to play in Boston that badly, that's what you're going to have to do because that's the only way it's going to happen because they're going to they're gonna have to have a lot of players on minimum deals and entry-level deals just based on the money they're paying guys like McAvoy and Pasternak based on the $5 million a bonus overage penalty they're paying on Krejci and Bergeron's deals and based on you know the money they're going to have to give a guy like Swayman on his second deal Trent Frederick on his second deal you know there's there's going to be a, a lot of change where a lot of yeah. the free agents on this team of which there's quite a few are not coming back because yeah. they just they, there's no way to pay them unless you um, trade someone like Taylor Hall just for salary relief that'll yeah. allow you some money but Taylor at Hall, best Matt, less likely I think Taylor Hall Matt Grizzlick I think Grizzlick much more Carlo. likely yeah. you know cuz they have a, lo- a large glut of defensemen so they're going to try to move some of those defenseman contracts if they can find somebody to take Mike Riley out of the minors definitely uh good luck on that uh you know Hall somebody I'm sure they're going to look at but I, I don't know that they're going to be able to move him you know I, he did look good in the playoffs so maybe they'll be able to find Yeah a Hall's but... a deadline guy if the season's going on and you and you realize it's not happening Hall's the type of guy that could get moved at a deadline for a better Hall you know better Hall Yeah I I it could be but I don't see them being trade sellers at the deadline I, I if the Bruins start getting into a mode where they're sellers at the deadline something's really starting to go wrong because you know, even without uh, Krejci and Bergeron, they still have McAvoy. They still have goalies that should at least perform during the regular season, even if they choke in the playoffs. You know, they're still going to have David Pasternak, Marshan. Like, they're still going to have a lot of really good players. So, yeah, yep. I think they're going to be too good to be, you know, a seller at the deadline. Um, but you, you, you know, to your point, they're going to have to move somebody of significance in order to free up, you know, some money if they do want to bring in or keep some of these other players. So, but you know. It's, it's they they did they put so much in to so many chips in to the team winning this season and winning it all that they've set themselves up for all of this like salary cap mess and all these things that are going to be happening with no high draft picks for the next couple of years. Yeah, they, they you know they've really tied their own hands, Don Sweeney and the rest of the management group uh, for the next one or two years to what they have here because they were trying so hard to win it this past season. Uh, and that's why I don't put a ton of blame into Don Sweeney uh, because I think he went for it. I think he, he did, you know, uh, he did everything he could to help this team win. He put all the pieces in place and you have to blame it on the coaches and the players for not getting no it done. Cause I think management did everything they could possibly do. No doubt. So again, I think now kind of uh, a general global look at this team and this core with a couple of these last comments we're going to take here on the pod. Um, so, you know, we'll, I'll start with a comment from Mark Herbert uh, on Facebook. They were all in to break a meaningless record. Take away Tim Thomas stealing a cup and look at their history. Look at the home losses. Look at the – they traded for guys from losing awful teams. Goalies can't handle playoff co- hockey. A coach who crapped his pants. Major changes need to happen. <laughs> Old guys need to go. Look, that's an angry uh, yes. comment. Very and a angry. lot of that stuff is not necessarily rooted in reality. But uh, there's another question in here. And I think we're talking about legacy uh, a little bit. But, yep. uh, you know, from Don Dorcher, also on Facebook. So is there 
only cup in 2011 a fluke. I'm going to reverse that a little and talk about it, whether that was a fluke or not. That was a team that was not necessarily meant or, you know, uh, you know, positioned to win a Stanley Cup, but that you we saw, you would see after the fact how good those players actually were. It just wasn't known to the entire world yet in what they truly had in some of these other guys. Uh, and obviously with Marshawn and Bergeron blossoming into the, you know, amazing two-way players they were, those are the early days of that. And Krejci were operating as the number one center at that at, at that point but my bigger question let's take that and kind of fold it into a larger one if you look at the core of Bergeron Krejci Marshawn then even throw in Chara for you know the t- length of time that he was here yep. and uh you know obviously up until recently you know uh Tuca as well as kind of like you know the five carryovers from 2011 that you know uh you know we're with this team you still have a lot of that core on this team and their fingerprints all over what happened, both success and failure. Yep. Should they have one more? Is this, is it an unsatisfying sort of thing? Was whether 2011 is a fluke or not, you had shots in 13 and 19. You had a number one seeded team this year. Certainly you would feel that more than one cup, they, uh, let's just say Bergeron and Krejci should have more than one cup under their belts. I equate it um maybe it's because i was like a huge baseball fan growing up but i equate uh what the bruins have done in this era of their their uh this iteration of their uh their being organizationally i compared a lot to the atlanta braves when they had smoltz maddox glavin like they were in the playoffs every year they won the division every year they were this fantastic team that had this like tradition of, of winning and winning a lot during the regular season. But I felt like they didn't win enough world series titles for the team that they had at that time, you know, like they were always there and they didn't win enough at times. And you felt like it was just this, they were there every year and, you know, they put this tradition of winning together where they were constantly winning that (laughs) uh, division and constantly getting deep into the playoffs, but they just couldn't get over the, the hump and actually win. And it was always some other team uh, that was beating them to it, uh, eliminating them, or just a little bit better. And I get that feeling um, with this Bruins uh, team to a degree, too. 2011 was magical. Uh, it was a fantastic uh, Stanley Cup championship. Uh, more and more, as you look at it and break it down, it does look like Tim Thomas played a huge role in that happening and was you know the biggest factor uh, in them winning when they won. They obviously had a, an extremely good team around him and a worthy team. Um, but it does look like that was his like just otherworldly performance in those 2011 playoffs of which, you know, he still holds records and still blows your mind when you look at the numbers he put up and they put up a shutout in game seven of the, uh, conference finals and the game seven of the Stanley cup final, like, you know, all the stuff that happened that he was at the center of, uh, it does look like he was the different piece. Uh, he was the difference maker on that team where they didn't have it at other times in other playoff series where they got all the way to the Stanley Cup final and lost. And, you know, I, it, this is obviously a, a another piece of ammunition for, for people that will say that, you know, it just wasn't good enough for the talent that they had. The amount of titles that they won uh, was this record-breaking season and then going out in the first round. But I, I continue to go back to 2019 and the Stanley Cup final against the Blues. And that was really the legacy moment for... Patrice Bergeron, Zdeno Chara, Brad Marchand, all David Krejci, the, like the all of these five. players. Yep, and exactly. Tuka Rask, who would have won his first as the number one goalie. Um, 
that was the time to cement their legacy to become, if you were going to be one of the all-time great teams, a sort of dynastic team, a team that had staying power and could win the title, not just get to the dance, but win that the will whole be remembered thing. like a Blackhawks or a, or a Penguins yes. along the way. One of those and, teams and, that was, yeah, that was more and, than just that one. Yeah, yeah, and instead, you know, I think because they lost in 2019 when they were the better team, when the the season had parted for them to get all the way to the end because all the top seeds were out of the playoffs. <laughs> yep. For them to lose that game seven in that series against the Blues and then to finish off this uh, record season with the first round exit to the Florida Panthers, I think it continues to cement them as sort of the Atlanta Braves of the NHL, you know, from 20, 30 years ago where they were just good enough to win divisions, just good enough to always be one of the best teams, always be in the mix to go into the postseason, but not good enough to win the titles and win the championships and kind of underachieved as far as titles and, and, and winning it when it really mattered at the end goes. Yep. And, and, and that's, that's always going to be the, you know, you're going to look at 19 as the, that, that was it. You know, yep. that was the one they, they absolutely should have had. Uh, and this would have been gravy and a great possible final farewell to, you know, that core once and for all with Bergeron and Krejci, great swan song. Didn't happen. I, I think fans will always feel a little bit sated by at least having gotten that one cup because it was a truly special moment uh, and a great team and a likable team. and a Well, they'd be the run. Buffalo Bills if they didn't get that one cup, right? Yeah, Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah, no, it would be bad. Um, so they got that, but I, I think it's fair to question either whether it was a Tim Thomas stole the cup sort of fluke, uh, you know, uh, and whether they even deserve that or whether they needed more. Fair, fair to think it. Um, a shame because opportunities were there. This was one of them. This was a clear, clear, clear blown opportunity, though, again, you know, continuing to advance with the teams and the caliber of teams remaining in these playoffs wouldn't have been a sure thing. So even if you get through Florida, you don't know where this goes next. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, Joe, um, if Bergeron was, if this is a version of Bergeron, you're getting all the way through and Krejci wasn't ever fully right. And Linus wasn't himself. Right. I don't know that you're getting much farther than this. So the reality is no. they might've been doomed even if they got a little bit further there. Yes. Um, you know, and that's going to always haunt you. You know, I, I firmly I believe that they lost their cup chances when Patrice Bergeron in Montreal. Got the first yeah. period in Montreal. It's possible. That was We're going to sp- we're going to spend the whole off season talking about what Jim Montgomery <laughs> did wrong. And they might've lost it before the playoff, before the puck dropped in game one, which yep. is a crazy thing to think of considering how far they'd gone this season. Uh, and it's just right at the finish line. You just, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a tough pill to swallow for Bruins fans. And I, I the sting's going to remain, even if they come back in a reduced form last year, because some guys are going to be gone. They can't afford some. You're one year older. It just gets tougher. So we'll see. Uh, this is going to wrap uh, Pucks with Hags uh, podcast here on the CLNS Media Network, powered by uh, FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston. Receive $1,000 in no sweat first bet. A no sweat first bet uh, when you go to FanDuel.com slash Boston. Sign up. Make a real money wager. You get up to 1000 back on a no sweat first bet. Uh, and that's the offer running right now. And of course, Joe Haggerty, uh, get all of his written material over at Boston Hockey Now. The season's over, but Joe's going to keep pumping out the content because there's still a lot to talk about, both what's going on in the NHL right now and obviously anything and everything regarding the Bruins. And there's going to 
be news. You're going to hear stuff about who's coming back and what's happening. And then we're going to enter the off season and it's really going to get real. And you're going to get a sense of what type of team you're going to be looking at when they break camp and they, you know, they start next season, hopefully with a chance to maybe run it back and uh, undo some of the uh, damage that they've done to the fan base and how sad they've made all of you poor people. Uh, Good luck after. with that Bruins. After the collapse, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be tough. But again, uh, Joe Haggerty, best in the business. You can catch all of his stuff, as I said, over at Boston Hockey Now. Thank you guys for watching. We will see you next week. <laughs>